0: Book One, Chapter Eleven of Marcella. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Book One, Chapter Eleven. Lord Maxwell closed the drawing room door behind Aldous and Marcella. Aldous had proposed to take their guest to see the picture gallery, which was on the first floor and had found her willing. The old man came back to the two other women, running his hands nervously through his shock of white hair, a gesture which Miss Rayburn well knew to show some disturbance of mind. "'I should like to have your opinion of that young lady,' he said deliberately, taking a chair immediately in front of them. "'I like her,' said Lady Winterbourne instantly. "'Of course she is crude and extravagant, and does not know quite what she may say, but all that will improve. I like her,' and shall make friends with her. Miss Rayburn threw up her hands in angry amazement. Most forward, conceited, and ill-mannered, she said with energy. I am certain she has no proper principles, and as to what her religious views may be, I dread to think of them. If that is a specimen of the girls of the present day— My dear, interrupted Lord Maxwell, laying a hand on her knee. Lady Winterbourne is an old friend, a very old friend. I think we may be frank before her and I don't wish you to say things you may regret. Aldous has made up his mind to get that girl to marry him, if he can. Lady Winterbourne was silent, having in fact been forewarned by that odd little interview with Aldous in her own drawing-room, when he had suddenly asked her to call on Miss Boyce. But she looked at Miss Rayburn. That lady took up her knitting, laid it down again, resumed it, then broke out. How did it come about? Where have they been meeting? At the Hardens mostly.' He seems to have been struck from the beginning, and now there is no question as to his determination. But she may not have him. He professes to be still entirely in the dark. Oh! cried Miss Rayburn, with a scornful shrug, meant to express all possible incredulity. Then she began to knit fast and furiously, and presently said, in great agitation, What can he be thinking of? She is very handsome, of course, but— Then her words failed her. When Aldous remembers his mother, how can he— undisciplined self-willed why she laid down the law to you henry as though you had nothing to do but to take your opinions from a chit of a girl like her oh no no i really can't you must give me time and her father the disgrace and trouble of it i tell you henry it will bring misfortune lord maxwell was much troubled certainly he should have talked to agneta beforehand but the fact was that he had his cowardice like other men and he had been trusting to the girl herself, to this beauty he heard so much of, to soften the first shock of the matter to the present mistress of the court. "'We will hope not, Agneta,' he said gravely, "'we will hope not. But you must remember Aldous is no boy. I cannot coerce him. I see the difficulties, and I have put them before him. But I am more favourably struck with the girl than you are. And anyway, if it comes about, we must make the best of it.' Miss Rayburn made no answer, but pretended to set her heel, her needle shaking. Lady Winterbourne was very sorry for her two old friends. "'Wait a little,' she said, laying her hand lightly on Miss Rayburn's. No doubt with her opinions she felt specially drawn to assert herself to-day. One can imagine it very well of a girl, and a generous girl, in her position. You will see other sides of her. I am sure you will. And you would never—you could never— make a breach with Aldous.' "'We must all remember,' said Lord Maxwell, getting up and beginning to walk up and down beside them, "'that Aldous is in no way dependent upon me. He has his own resources. He could leave us to-morrow. Dependent on me? It is the other way, I think, Agneta. Don't you?' He stopped and looked at her, and she returned his look in spite of herself. A tear dropped on her stocking, which she hastily brushed away.' "'Come now,' said Lord Maxwell, seating himself. "'Let us talk it over rationally. "'Don't go, Lady Winterbourne.' "'Why, they may be settling it at this moment!' "'cried Miss Rayburn, half-choked, "'and feeling as though the skies were impious not to fall. "'No, no,' he said, smiling. "'Not yet, I think. "'But let us prepare ourselves.' Meanwhile the cause of all this agitation "'was sitting languidly in a great Louis Cannes chair.' in the picture-gallery upstairs with aldous beside her she had taken off her big hat as though it oppressed her and her black head lay against a corner of the chair in fine contrast to its mellowed golds and crimsons opposite to her were two famous holbein portraits at which she looked from time to time as though attracted to them in spite of herself by some trained sense which could not be silenced but she was not communicative and aldous was anxious "'Do you think I was rude to your grandfather?' she asked him at last, abruptly, cutting dead short some information she had stiffly asked him for just before, as to the date of the gallery and its collection. "'Rude!' he said, startled. "'Not at all. Not in the least. Do you suppose we are made of such brittle stuff, we poor landowners, that we can't stand an argument now and then?' "'Your aunt thought I was rude,' she said, unheeding. "'I think I was. But a house like this excites me.' and with a little reckless gesture she turned her head over her shoulder and looked down the gallery. A Velasquez was beside her, a great Titian over the way, a priceless Rembrandt beside it. On her right hand stood a chair of carved steel, presented by a German town to a German emperor, which had not its equal in Europe. The brocade draping the deep windows in front of her had been specially made to grace a state visit to the house of Charles II. At Mellor, she went on. "'We are old and tumbled down. The rain comes in. There are no shutters to the big hall, and we can't afford to put them. We can't afford even to have the pictures cleaned. I can pity the house and nurse it, as I do the village. But here—' And looking about her, she gave a significant shrug. "'What, our feathers again?' he said, laughing. "'But consider, even you allow that socialism cannot begin to-morrow. There must be a transition time.' "'and clearly till the State is ready to take over the historical houses and their contents, "'the present nominal owners of them are bound, if they can, to take care of them, "'otherwise the State will be some day defrauded.' "'She could not be insensible to the charm of his manner towards her. "'There was in it, no doubt, the natural force and weight of the man older and better informed "'than his companion, and amused every now and then by her extravagance. "'But even her irritable pride could not take offence for the intellectual dissent she felt at bottom, was tempered by a moral sympathy of which the gentleness and warmth touched and moved her, in spite of herself. And now that they were alone, he could express himself. So long as they had been in company, he had seemed to her, as often before, shy, hesitating, and ineffective. But with the disappearance of spectators, who represented to him, no doubt, the harassing claim of the critical judgment, all was freer, more assured, more natural.' She lent her chin on her hand, considering his plea. "'Supposing you live long enough to see the State take it, shall you be able to reconcile yourself to it, or shall you feel it a wrong and go out a rebel?' A delightful smile was beginning to dance in the dark eyes. She was recovering the tension of her talk with Lord Maxwell. "'All must depend, you see, on the conditions, on how you and your friends are going to manage the transition.' "'You may persuade me conceivably, or you may eject me with violence.' "'Oh, no,' she interposed quickly, "'there will be no violence. Only we shall gradually reduce your wages. Of course we can't do without leaders. We don't want to do away with the captains of any industry, agricultural or manufacturing. Only we think you overpaid. You must be content with less.' "'Don't linger out the process,' he said, laughing. "'Otherwise it will be painful.' The people who are condemned to live in these houses before the commune takes to them, while your graduated land and income taxes are slowly starving them out, will have a bad time of it. Well, it will be your first bad time. Think of the labourer now with five children of school age on twelve shillings a week. Think of the sweated women in London. Ah, think of them, he said in a different tone. There was a pause of silence. No, said Marcella, springing up. Don't let's think of them. I get to believe the whole thing a pose in myself and other people. Let's go back to the pictures. Do you think Titian sweated his drapery men, paid them starvation rates, and grew rich on their labour? Very likely. All the same, that blue woman,' she pointed to a bending Magdalene, "'will be a joy to all time.' They wandered through the gallery, and she was now all curiosity, pleasure, and intelligent interest, as though she had thrown off an oppression." Then they emerged into the upper corridor, answering to the corridor of the antiques below. This also was hung with pictures, principally family portraits of the second order, dating back to the Tudors, a fine series of berobed and bejewelled personages, wherein clothes predominated and character was unimportant. Marcella's eye was glancing along the brilliant colour of the wall, taking rapid note of jewelled necks surmounting stiff embroidered dresses, of the whiteness of lace ruffs, "'or the love-locks and gleaming satin of the Caroline beauties, "'when it suddenly occurred to her, "'I shall be their successor. "'This is already potentially mine. "'In a few months, if I please, "'I shall be walking this house as mistress, "'its future mistress, at any rate.' "'She was conscious of a quickening in the blood, "'a momentary blurring of the vision. "'A whirlwind of fancies swept across her. "'She thought of herself as the young peeress,' Lord Maxwell, after all, was over seventy, her own white neck blazing with diamonds, the historic jewels of a great family, her will making law in this splendid house, in the great domain surrounding it. What power! What a position! What a romance! She, the out-at-elbows Marcella, the socialist, the friend of the people, what new lines of social action and endeavour she might strike out! Miss Rayburn should not stop her, she caressed the thought of the scandals in store for that lady. Only it annoyed her that her dream of large things should be constantly crossed by this foolish delight, making her feet dance, in this mere prospect of satin gowns and fine jewels, of young and fated beauty holding its brilliant court. If she made such a marriage, it should be, it must be, on public grounds. Her friends must have no right to blame her. Then she stole a glance at the tall, quiet gentleman beside her. A man to be proud of from the beginning, and surely to be very fond of in time. He would always be my friend, she thought. I could lead him. He is very clever, one can see, and knows a great deal. But he admires what I like. His position hampers him, but I could help him to get beyond it. We might show the way to many. "'Will you come and see this room here?' he said, stopping suddenly yet with a certain hesitation in the voice. "'It is my own sitting-room. There are one or two portraits I should like to show you, if you would let me.' She followed him with a rosy cheek, and they were presently standing in front of the portrait of his mother. He spoke of his recollections of his parents, quietly and simply, yet she felt through every nerve that he was not the man to speak of such things to anybody in whom he did not feel a very strong and peculiar interest.' As he was talking, a rush of liking towards him came across her. How good he was, how affectionate beneath his reserve! A woman might securely trust him with her future. So with every minute she grew softer, her eyes gentler, and with each step and word he seemed to himself to be carried deeper into the current of joy. Intoxication was mounting within him as her slim, warm youth moved and breathed beside him, and it was natural that he should read her changing behaviour for something other than it was. A man of his type asks for no advance from the woman. The woman he loves does not make them. But at the same time he has a natural self-esteem, and believes readily in his power to win the return he is certain he will deserve. And this, she said, moving restlessly towards his table, and taking up the photograph of Edward Hallin, "'Ah, that is the greatest friend I have in the world. "'But I'm sure you know the name. "'Mr. Hallin, Edward Hallin.' "'She paused, bewildered. "'What? The Mr. Hallin? "'That was Edward Hallin, "'who settled the Nottingham strike last month, "'who lectures so much in the East End and in the North. "'The same. We are old college friends. "'I owe him much, and in all his excitements "'he does not forget old friends. "'There, you see,' and he opened a blotting-book, and pointed smilingly to some closely written sheets lying within it, is my last letter to him. I often write two of those in the week, and he to me. We don't agree on a number of things, but that doesn't matter. What can you find to write about? she said, wondering. I thought nobody wrote letters nowadays, only notes. Is it books or people? Both, when it pleases us. How soon, O ye favouring gods, might he reveal to her the part she herself played in those closely covered sheets— but he writes to me on social matters chiefly his whole heart as you probably know is in certain experiments and reforms in which he sometimes asks me to help him marcella opened her eyes these were new lights she began to recall all that she had heard of young hallin's position in the labour movement his personal magnetism and prestige his power as a speaker her socialist friends she remembered thought him in the way a force but a dangerous one He was for the follies of compromise, could not be got to disavow the principle of private property, while ready to go great lengths in certain directions towards collective action and corporate control. The stalwarts of her sect would have none of him as a leader, while admitting his charm as a human being, a charm she remembered to have heard discussed with some anxiety among her venturist friends. But for ordinary people he went far enough. Her father, she remembered, had dubbed him an anarchist, in connection with the terms he had been able to secure for the Nottingham Strikers, as reported in the newspapers. It astonished her to come across the man again as Mr. Rayburn's friend. They talked about Hallin a little, and about Aldous's Cambridge acquaintance with him. Then Marcella, still nervous, went to look at the bookshelves, and found herself in front of that working collection of books on economics, which Aldous kept in his own room under his hand by way of guide to the very fine special collection he was gradually making in the library downstairs. Here again were surprises for her. Aldous had never made the smallest claim to special knowledge on all those subjects she had so often insisted on making him discuss. He had always been tentative and diffident, deferential even, so far as her own opinions were concerned. And here already was the library of a student. All the books she had ever read or heard discussed were here, and as few among many. The condition of them, moreover, the signs of close and careful reading she noticed in them, as she took them out, abashed her. She had never learnt to read in this way. It was her first contact with an exact and arduous culture. She thought of how she had instructed Lord Maxwell at luncheon. No doubt he shared his grandson's interests. Her cheek burned anew, this time because it seemed to her that she had been ridiculous.' "'I don't know why you never told me you took a particular interest in these subjects,' she said suddenly, turning round upon him resentfully. She had just laid down, of all things, a volume of venturist essays. "'You must have thought I talked a great deal of nonsense at luncheon. Why, I have always been delighted to find you cared for such things and took an interest in them. How few women do,' he said quite simply, opening his eyes. "'Do you know these three pamphlets? They were privately printed, and are very rare.' He took out a book and showed it to her as one does to a comrade and equal, as he might have done to Edward Hallin. But something was jarred in her, conscience or self-esteem, and she could not recover her sense of heroineship. She answered absently, and when he returned the book to the shelf, she said that it was time for her to go, and would he kindly ask for her maid, who was to walk with her. "'I will ring for her directly,' he said. "'But you will let me take you home?' Then he added hurriedly, "'I have some business this afternoon with a man who lives in your direction.' She assented a little stiffly, but with an inward thrill. His words and manner seemed suddenly to make the situation unmistakable. Among the books it had been for the moment obscured. He rang for his own servant and gave directions about the maid. Then they went downstairs that Marcella might say good-bye.' miss raybone bade her guest farewell with a dignity which her small person could sometimes assume not unbecomingly lady winterbourne held the girl's hand a little looked her out of countenance and insisted on her promising again to come to winterbourne park the following tuesday then lord maxwell with old-fashioned politeness made marcella take his arm through the hall you must come and see us again he said smiling Though we are such belated old Tories, we are not so bad as we sound. And under cover of his mild banter, he fixed a penetrating, attentive look upon her. Flushed and embarrassed, had it indeed been done already, or would Aldous settle it on this walk? To judge from his manner and hers, the thing was going with rapidity. Well, well, there was nothing for it but to hope for the best. On their way through the hall, she stopped him her hand still in his arm. Aldous was in front at the door, looking for a light shawl she had brought with her. "'I should like to thank you,' she said shyly, "'about the herds. It will be very kind of you and Mr. Rayburn to find them work.' Lord Maxwell was pleased, and with the usual unfair advantage of beauty her eyes and curving lips gave her little advance a charm infinitely beyond what any plainer woman could have commanded.' oh don't thank me he said cheerfully thank aldous he does all that kind of thing and if in your good works you want any help we can give ask it my dear young lady my old comrade's granddaughter will always find friends in this house lord maxwell would have been very much astonished to hear himself making this speech six weeks before as it was he handed her over gallantly to aldous And stood on the steps looking after them in a stir of mind not unnoted by the confidential butler who held the door open behind him. Would Aldous insist on carrying his wife off to the dower house on the other side of the estate? Or would they be content to stay in the old place with the old people? And if so, how were that girl and his sister to get on? As for himself, he was of a naturally optimist temper, and ever since the night of his first interview with Aldous on the subject, he had been more and more inclined to take a cheerful view. He liked to see a young creature, of such evident character and cleverness, holding opinions and lines of her own. It was infinitely better than mere nonentity. Of course she was now extravagant and foolish, perhaps vain too, but that would mend with time, mend above all with her position as Aldous's wife. Aldous was a strong man, How strong, Lord Maxwell suspected, that this impetuous young lady hardly knew. No, he thought the family might be trusted to cope with her, when once they got her amongst them, and she would certainly be an ornament to the old house. Her father, of course, was and would be the real difficulty, and the blight which had descended on the once honoured name. But a man so conscious of many kinds of power as Lord Maxwell could not feel much doubt as to his own and his grandson's competence to keep so poor a specimen of humanity as Richard Boyce in his place. How wretchedly ill, how feeble, both in body and soul, the fellow had looked when he and Winterbourne met him. The white-haired owner of the court walked back slowly to his library, his hands in his pockets, his head bent in cogitation, impossible to settle to the various important political letters lying on his table, and bearing all of them on that approaching crisis in the spring, which must put Lord Maxwell and his friends in power. He was over seventy, but his old blood quickened within him, as he thought of those two on this golden afternoon, among the beechwoods. How late Aldous had left all these experiences! His grandfather, by twenty, could have shown him the way. Meanwhile, The two in question were walking along the edge of the hill rampart overlooking the plain, with the road on one side of them and the falling beechwoods on the other. They were on a woodland path, just within the trees, sheltered and to all intents and purposes alone. The maid, with leisurely discretion, was following far behind them on the high road. Marcella, who felt at moments as though she could hardly breathe, by reason of a certain tumult of nerve, was yet apparently bent on maintaining a conversation without breaks. As they diverged from the road into the wood-path, she plunged into the subject of her companion's election prospects. How many meetings did he find that he must hold in the month? What places did he regard as his principal strongholds? She was told that certain villages which she named were certain to go radical, whatever might be the Tory promises.' as to a well-known conservative league which was very strong in the country and to which all the great ladies including lady winterbourne belonged was he actually going to demean himself by accepting its support how was it possible to defend the bribery buns and beers by which it won its corrupting way altogether a quick fire of questions remarks and sallies which aldous met and parried as best he might comforting himself all the time by thought of those deeper and lonelier parts of the wood which lay before them at last she dropped out half laughing half defiant words which arrested him well i shall know what the other side thinks of their prospects very soon mr wharton is coming to lunch with us to-morrow harry wharton he said astonished but mr boyce is not supporting him "'Your father, I think, is conservative.' "'One of Dick Boyce's first acts as owner of Mellor, "'when social rehabilitation had still looked probable to him, "'had been to send a contribution to the funds of the League aforesaid, "'so that Aldous had public and conspicuous grounds for his remark. "'Need one measure everything by politics?' she asked him a little disdainfully. may not one even feed a radical?' "'He winced visibly a moment, touched in his philosopher's pride.' you remind me he said laughing and reddening and justly that an election perverts all one's standards and besmirches all one's morals then i suppose mr wharton is an old friend papa never saw him before last week she said carelessly now he talks of asking him to stay some time and says that although he won't vote for him he hopes that he will make a good fight raeburn's brow contracted in a puzzled frown he will make an excellent fight he said rather shortly. Dodgson hardly hopes to get in. Harry Wharton is a most taking speaker, a very clever fellow, and sticks at nothing in the way of promises. Ah, you will find him interesting, Miss Boyce. He has a cooperative farm on his Lincolnshire property. Last year he started a labour paper, which I believe you read. I have heard you quote it. He believes in all that you hope for, great increase in local government and communal control, the land for the people, graduated income tax, the extinction of landlord and capitalist as soon as may be, a tutti Quenti? He talks with great eloquence and ability. In our villages I find he is making way every week. The people think his manner's perfect. He has a way, said an old labourer to me last week. If he were to co the wild birds, I do believe, muster Reben they'd come to one. Yet you dislike him, said Marcella, a daring smile dancing on the dark face she turned to him. "'One can hear it in every word you say.' He hesitated, trying even at the moment that an impulse of jealous alarm which astonished himself had taken possession of him, to find the moderate and measured phrase. "'I have known him from a boy,' he said. "'He is a connection of the Levens, and used to always be there in the old days. He is very brilliant, and very gifted. "'Your butt must be very bad,' she threw in. It is so long in coming.' "'Then I will say, whatever opening it gives you,' he replied with spirit, "'that I admire him without respecting him.' "'Whoever thought otherwise of a clever opponent?' she cried. "'It is the stock formula.' The remark stung, all the more because Aldous was perfectly conscious that there was much truth in her implied charge of prejudice. He had never been very capable of seeing this particular man in the dry light of reason and was certainly less so than before, since it had been revealed to him that Wharton and Mr. Boyce's daughter were to be brought, before long, into close neighbourhood. "'I am sorry that I seem to you such a Pharisee,' he said, turning upon her a look which had both pain and excitement in it. She was silent, and they walked on a few yards without speaking. The wood had thickened around them. The high road was no longer visible. No sound of wheels or footsteps reached them, the sun struck freely through the beech-trees already half-bared whitening the grey trunks at intervals to an arrowy distinctness and majesty or kindling the slopes of red and freshly fallen leaves below into great patches of light and flame through the stems as always the girdling blues of the plain and in their faces a gay and buoyant breeze speaking rather of spring than autumn robins yellow autumn's nightingales sang in the hedge to their right In the pause between them sun, wind, birds made their charm felt. Nature, perpetual chorus as she is to man, stole in, urging, wooing, defining. Aldous's heart leapt to the spur of a sudden resolve. Instinctively she turned to him at the same moment as he to her, and seeing his look she paled a little. "'Do you guess at all why it hurts me to jar with you?' he said finding his words in a rush. He did not know how. Why, every syllable of yours matters to me. It is because I have hopes, dreams, which have become my life. If you could accept this, this feeling, this devotion, which has grown up in me, if you could trust yourself to me, you should have no cause, I think, ever, to think me hard or narrow towards any person, any enthusiasm for which you had sympathy.' "'May I say to you all that is in my mind, or or am I presuming?' She looked away from him crimson again. A great wave of exultation, boundless, intoxicating, swept through her. Then it was checked by a nobler feeling, a quick, penitent sense of his nobleness. "'You don't know me,' she said hurriedly. "'You think you do, but I am all odds and ends. I should annoy, wound, disappoint you.' "'his quiet grey eyes flamed. "'Come and sit down here, on these dry roots,' he said, "'taking already joyous command of her. "'We shall be undisturbed. "'I have so much to say.' "'She obeyed, trembling. "'She felt no passion, "'but the strong thrill of something momentous and irreparable, "'together with a swelling pride, "'pride in such homage from such a man. "'He led her a few steps down the slope,' found a place for her against a sheltering trunk, and threw himself down beside her. As he looked up at the picture she made amid the autumn branches, at her bent head, her shy-moved look, her white hand lying ungloved on her black dress, happiness overcame him. He took her hand, found she did not resist, drew it to him, and clasping it in both his, bent his brow, his lips upon it. It shook in his hold, but she was passive, the mixture of emotion and self-control she showed touched him deeply. In his chivalrous modesty he asked for nothing else, dreamt of nothing more. Half an hour later they were still in the same spot. There had been much talk between them, most of it earnest, but some of it quite gay, broken especially by her smiles. Her teasing mood, however, had passed away. She was instead composed and dignified, like one conscious that life had opened before her to great issues. Yet she had flinched often before that quiet tone of eager joy in which he had described his first impressions of her, his surprise at finding in her ideals, revolts, passions quite unknown to him so far in the women of his own class. Naturally he suppressed, perhaps he had even forgotten, the critical amusement and irritation she had often excited in him, He remembered, he spoke only, of sympathy, delight, pleasure, of his sense, as it were, of slaking some long-felt moral thirst at the well of her fresh feeling. So she had attracted him first, by a certain strangeness and daring, by what she said. Now, and above all, by what you are, he broke out suddenly, moved out of his even speech. Oh, it is too much to believe, to dream of. Put your hand in mine and say again that it is really true, that we two are to go forward together, that you will be always there to inspire, to help. And as she gave him the hand, she must also let him, in this first tremor of a pure passion, take the kiss which was now his by right, that she should flush and draw away from him as she did, seemed to him the most natural thing in the world, and the most maidenly. Then, as their talk wandered on bit by bit, he gave her all his confidence— and she had felt herself honoured in receiving it. She understood now at least something, a first fraction, of that inner life, masked so well beneath his quiet English capacity and unassuming manner. He had spoken of his Cambridge years, of his friend, of the desire of his heart to make his landowner's power and position contribute something towards that new and better social order, which he too, like Hallin, though more faintly and intermittently, believed to be approaching. The difficulties of any really new departure were tremendous. He saw them more plainly and more anxiously than Hallin. Yet he believed that he had thought his way to some effective reform on his grandfather's large estate, and to some useful work as one of a group of like-minded men in Parliament. She must have often thought him careless and apathetic towards his great trust, but he was not so, not careless, but paralysed often by intellectual difficulty, by the claims of conflicting truths. She, too, explained herself most freely, most frankly. She would have nothing on her conscience. They will say, of course, she said with sudden nervous abruptness, that I am marrying you for wealth and position, and in a sense I shall be. No, don't stop me. I should not marry you if—if I did not like you. But you can give me— You have great opportunities. I tell you frankly, I shall enjoy them and use them. Oh, do think well before you do it. I shall never be a meek, dependent wife. A woman, to my mind, is bound to cherish her own individuality sacredly, married or not married. Have you thought that I may often think it right to do things you disagree with, that may scandalise your relations? You shall be free, he said steadily. I have thought of it all. Then there is my father, she said, turning her head away. He is ill. He wants pity, affection. I will accept no bond that forces me to disown him. Pity and affection are to me the most sacred things in the world, he said, kissing her hand gently. Be content. Be at rest, my beautiful lady. There was again silence, full of thought on her side, of heavenly happiness on his. The sun had sunk almost to the verge of the plain. The wind had freshened. "'We must go home,' she said, springing up. "'Taylor must have got there an hour ago. "'Mother will be anxious, and I must—I must tell them.' "'I will leave you at the gate,' he suggested as they walked briskly. "'And you will ask your father, will you not, if I may see him to-night, after dinner?' The trees thinned again in front of them, and the path curved inward to the front. Suddenly a man, walking on the road, diverged into the path and came towards them. He was swinging a stick and humming.' His head was uncovered, and his light chestnut curls were blown about his forehead by the wind. Marcella, looking up at the sound of the steps, had a sudden impression of something young and radiant, and Aldous stopped with an exclamation. The newcomer perceived them, and at sight of Aldous smiled, and approached, holding out his hand. "'Why, Rayburn, I seem to have missed you twenty times a day this last fortnight. We have been always on each other's tracks without meeting. Yet I think if we had met—' "'We could have kept our tempers.' "'Miss Boyce, I think you do not know Mr. Wharton,' said Aldous, stiffly. "'May I introduce you?' The young man's blue eyes, all alert and curious at the mention of Marcella's name, ran over the girl's face and form. Then he bowed with a certain charming exaggeration, like an eighteenth-century beau, with his hand upon his heart, and turned back with them a step or two towards the road.' End of Book 1, Chapter 11